This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 18, Episode 8. This is Writing Excuses. Building a mystery. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Dong Wan. I'm Aaron. I'm Dan. And I'm the Act Two Corpse. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to be talking about mysteries today. Um, one of the things that we promised you is that we were going to use the uh, our deep dives as a way to, to look at different things. Uh, over the course of the next couple of episodes, we're going to be talking about tension. Um, but we're going to start by looking very specifically at mysteries. Uh, for the first half of this episode, we're going to talk about the different types of mysteries. And then after our break, we're going to talk about some of the common tools. So what are some of the different types of mysteries? Great. Good answer. Yeah. <laughs> we're all deer in the headlights. Uh, the first one that comes to my mind is the cozy mystery, uh, yeah. which is the, you yeah. know, kind of the murder she wrote-ish genre of um, often a, an older lady who is solving a mystery in her spare time uh, while doing something kind of uh, charming or adorable. Uh, that That's one of my favorites. Yeah. I feel like they tend to be lower stakes a little bit, like easier on the violence. I mean, people still will end up dead in these, but um it, it's it's not as like hard hitting as like a jack reacher or something like that oh there's yeah. a whole there there's a whole rule set for cozies yeah. where if the detective if our pov person uh who I'll call the detective even though they're not usually a professional detective if they are ever actually threatened then you've stepped out of cozy uh if they actually perform violence you know get in a fight then it stops being cozy and starts moving into something else. Uh, yeah, Jack Reacher, I'm not sure what style that is. It's not quite, I, I think of it as the anti-cozy, because we have, we are we are following one person who didn't set out to be a detective under these circumstances, but they are doing all of the cozy mystery-esque, you know, stumbling into things, but they're stumbling into it with elbows and fists and sharp edges. It's like the reluctant detective kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. One of the other things I love about cozies is that they can really be in any like area of interest. It's like, are you interested in this hobby? Then there's <laughs> probably like a cozy mystery for you, be it bridge, mm -hmm. gardening, mountain climbing. And so I love that it gives people an opportunity to put the things that they love, their passions into this really comfortable form and just work it all in there. I remember as yeah. a kid, I read this whole series of cozy mysteries told from the POV of cats. This is still ongoing. One of my dear friends continues to edit these books, but the 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 cat cozy mysteries is just one of those truly delightful, weird corners of publishing. <laughs> I have been contemplating having Elsie solve mysteries, but feels like it's been done. Um, <laughs> uh, so another type that uh, that you'll see is the the straight up detective novel, which is where the main character is a detective, like Sherlock Holmes, Poirot, where they're using their expertise to solve the mysteries. 
Um, with uh, Spearman, I was actually splitting the difference a little bit because I have a detective, but I sideline him very fast. And so my my main character is using different expertise, but she is not a detective. So we are we are landing somewhere in between those two. For me, the defining feature of these is the moment where the detective gathers everyone in a room and explains what happened and, and points a finger at the actual murder, right? I feel like this is just that really classic Poirot scene of like, you have to use little gray cells, you know, and he's going to tell you exactly what happened. Um, and that to me is just one of the most delightful sort of uh, resolutions to a mystery in this very clean way. Um, yeah, and it, it's just like the thing that makes them stand out in my head is this iconic figure standing at the front of the room telling you what happened. Yeah, uh, really great modern example of this is Knives Out, uh, which was leaning really hard into all of those tropes of detective. Uh, And I think very telling that when they got a sequel, it is about the detective rather than the other giant cast of really interesting people. Uh, He wasn't even necessarily the main character, uh, but he got that big scene at the end where he walks everybody through and then he points the finger uh, and it's you know, right back in the tradition of uh, Agatha Christie and that sort of thing. And I think something that that Knives Out plays with a little bit uh, is I love that the detective is there like 50% of the time before, in this case is after, but like before a murder occurs, which is hilarious to me because it's very like anticipatory a lot of the time. Like, I think I'm going to be killed tonight. So I've, <laughs> instead of preventing that, I'm just going to invite a detective. So at least my murder is solved. It's such an interesting, like very comfortable trope in a lot of ways. It it makes the death feel less tense, I guess, because the person kind of knew it was coming and at least they prepped for it, which is an interesting feeling that I enjoy in sort of a classic detective <laughs> mystery. Yeah. One of my other favorite classic detective mysteries is a series uh, called Foil's War. And it's um, it's set during World War II and he's, He's a um, he's a detective for the you know British government or British police force, and he has to go out and and solve murders. So that actually t- trends us over into um, another style, which is called police procedural, mm-hmm. uh, which is usually a large group of people working within the system, and they're using the system to solve the mystery. Uh, so. Foyle's War kind of sits between those because he gets some help, but it is frequently him doing his detecting thing because they are significantly understaffed because of World War II. I mean, Law and Order being the classic example of this, you can turn on daytime TV at any point and watch a procedural episode of somebody committed a crime. Usually you'll see it in the cold open. Somebody solves it. And, you know, you go through the whole arc of following and it's very, very fixated on process. It's very fixated on, you know, the the machinations of how a police department functions. All the Michael Connelly novels kind of fall into this. Um, police procedural is like a very classic um, and probably the most popular version of this through the 90s and early 2000s. And Definitely it's why I identified myself. It's why I ident- identified myself instead of saying I'm Howard, saying I'm the Act 2 corpse because... In those police procedurals, it is very, very common with the structure that, you know, in Act One, you've got two or three suspects, and one of them is looking really good, 
And then that really good suspect ends up as your corpse at the beginning of act two or in the middle of act two, somewhere in there. Um, to the point that when my family sits down and watches a new police procedural or something, someone will point at the cow, you know, point at the screen and say, didn't do it. That's going to be our act two corpse. <laughs> and it, it's like, we're putting money down. It's fun. Called shot. Yeah. Uh, another genre that I think is important to mention, this is kind of two for one, um, supernatural mysteries. Um, and, and I think the, the, the kind of main example I want to throw out is Dr. Who. Mm -hmm. Dr. Who is, uh, you know, often not even a murder mystery. Uh, This is not about solving a crime necessarily so much as solving a puzzle. The mystery is weird thing is happening. Uh, in Doctor Who's case, it could be supernatural or science fictional, uh, but mysteries don't have to be about murder. That's right, uh, especially when you're talking about something like uh, YA, where it's often dealing with, uh, or middle grade, where you're often dealing with a theft. The Encyclopedia Brown books, uh, mm-hmm. Nancy mm-hmm. Drew, all of those are dealing with the classic mystery structure, but there's no corpse. Yeah. So even for adults, it does not have to have a corpse. One more category I wanted to hit is a classic one, which is the noir. Um, This is taking elements of mystery, but really punching it up with voice and character um, right up front. Um, You know, this is Dashiell Hammett. This is Maltese Falcon, Chinatown. Um, A mystery is core to what's going on. Uh, Something, Usually someone's dead or money's been stolen or an object's gone missing. But this is very much focused on a... Uh, very moody, very dark tone, a very specific voice and pastiche. Uh, noir is truly one of my favorite categories. It's a thing I delight in. I think Dashiell Hammond is one of the great writers of the 20th century. Um, and uh, it's 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 a real delight. That interestingly yeah. was one of the challenges that I had working with Spearman because the novel, mm-hmm. um, The Thin Man, which I was I was riffing on The Thin Man. Uh, The novel is noir, but the films, which is the part that I was riffing on, are not. They're a different style, which is called a mystery comedy. And and so one of the challenges that I had was getting some of the trappings of noir, but keeping the tone light. Mm -hmm. Which is great because Spearman feels, you can feel the noir roots in it, but you can also see how just pushing the voice a little bit takes it out of the category and makes it something else. And it just shows like how much it is about a particular way of saying things and a particular way of voicing a character and a perspective. You know, well, at the risk a- at, at the risk of leaning really heavily on Ryan Johnson, and, and I, this is going to lead <laughs> us into our thing of the week. Uh, one of his first movies was called Brick, uh, which what is a, a modern movie. film noir. Uh, and, you know, watching that and comparing Knives Out to brick, you can see how important that tone is. Uh, the the tone of it, the style, that kind of atmospheric focus uh, really changes the flavor of the whole thing. Well, let's go ahead and take a pause. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about the structural elements that all of these different forms of mystery have in common. Our thing of the week this week is Ryan Johnson's newest movie, uh, The Glass Onion, which is a sequel to Knives Out. Um, it just came out last December on Netflix and is truly one of my favorite things that I saw uh, uh, in over the holidays. Um, it is following on the 
the world from uh, Knives Out. It's the same detective, Benoit Blanc, returns. Uh, but tonally, it is doing something very different from Knives Out, where Knives Out was riffing on sort of classic mystery structure at a remote house, at a remote manor. This is a much uh, brighter, sort of pulpy or more contemporary story about uh, a tech billionaire who invites his friends to an island for a murder mystery game, which then devolves into uh, something far more dark and chaotic from there. Um, it is as he does such interesting things with narrative structure and is very playful with the audience expectations. It is somebody who understands the mechanics of how to put together a mystery at the deepest levels and watching him assemble this beautiful puzzle box is for me as somebody who likes to think about story and craft, just incredibly delicious and incredibly exciting. I can't recommend Glass Onion highly enough. So now we're going to talk about structure. Uh, there are a lot of overlaps in the different genres of mystery. You'll see things that are you know, both a cozy and a detective, all of these things. But they have two main things in common. There's the overall structure. There's a mystery has a specific structure. And then they all contain a puzzle. Um, I'm going to talk about the structure that I was working with when I was working on uh, Spare Man. And then we can also talk about some of the additional tropes because I'm not hitting all of the tropes when I talk about the structure. So you have the crime. Um, then you have the investigation. Then there's a twist. Then you have a breakthrough. And then you have the conclusion. Um these are these are the basic beats that you have to have in a mystery. Um, there are some other beats that will commonly occur. Uh, you'll see red herrings. Uh, the crime is often preceded by the establishing of normal, but sometimes you begin with a cold open of a crime. So um, what are some of the things that you all think about when you are thinking about mystery and the structure of mystery? I look at the structure of... Um when I think of three act, uh, I think of act two as driven largely by this iterative looping of try-fail cycle. And for mystery writing, for me anyway, the try-fail cycle is the detective having a theory and proving it wrong, having a theory and proving it wrong, having a theory and it proves disastrously wrong, you know, the, the act two corpse. Um, and with each iteration, information is being dropped on the reader so that the reader has the opportunity to catch up with and maybe if they're super clever and i want them to be right uh they will they will be able to get the answer before the detective drops it in act 3 but that whole try fail cycle of iterative looping through theories is a key structure for me when surprising no one, I'm going to mention the mice quotient. Um, uh, mysteries are, are classic inquiry stories, and this iterative looping that Howard is talking about, uh, you know, in a, a mystery or an inquiry thread, you begin with a question and then it ends when the uh, the question is answered, and so all of the roadblocks in the middle are keeping you from answering those questions, and that's that try-fail cycle, the iterative looping, um, which is also where red herrings come from because it, it draws the detective and the reader down the wrong path. One thing I think is really interesting in thinking about the differences between the types of mysteries 
is where that information is coming from mm-hmm. and how much it is access to authority. So in a cozy, there's usually no real authority figure. It is, you know, just a person acting on their own. Detective stories tend to bring in, like I've done a few tri-fail cycles on my own, but now I really need to get that, you know, autopsy report, other thing that like an authority uh, brings that is why the detectives tie to the police, even if it's tenuous, is helpful in their moving things forward. And then a police procedural, they have all of the access and sort of authority of the state that they can use as they're making these tri-fail cycles happen. So I think the structure is the same, but how those tri-fail cycles happen is a lot different depending on, you know, who's actually doing the investigating. That's a really interesting point about the authority of the of the detective. I I, I am making notes. That's very smart. <laughs> um. <laughs> well, I often use that as part of as part of the structure is that uh you know i'm the one of the fails in the tri-fail cycle is not being able to do a thing because you're not the authority yeah yeah a lot of what we're talking about it strikes me are basically impediments to success right why does the detective not solve this mystery in the first scene because mm-hmm. there are impediments to their success. And sometimes that is access to authority or to key information. You know, the detective requests the autopsy report or the bank account records or whatever very early on, but they don't get them until the end. And a lot of that middle part is just treading water in an entertaining way uh, until we finally get that information. Sometimes it is uh, the, you know, the tri-fail cycles like Howard was talking about of, you know, this theory doesn't pan out and then this theory doesn't pan out and so on and so on. Uh, One thing that I see often is that the final clue that helps us solve the whole thing uh, is discovered accidentally. You know, the detective earns it by their dogged determination to never stop looking. Uh, But, you know, in the process of trying something else, something pops up and they say, oh, wait, now I know exactly what's going on. And it's because of this out of left field clue. And if the audience is paying attention, they can possibly put it together as well. A lot of times that that out of left field clue um, uh, recontextualizes a piece of information that the detective had received earlier. That um, frequently it's one that they had misunderstood that is pointing them at the wrong person or that had seemed otherwise irrelevant. Uh, this is this gets into an area that uh, called playing fair, um, which is that in a mystery, the detective and the reader are trying to solve it at the same time. So to play fair, the reader has to receive all of the same information that the detective does. Often you will have things uh, like with Sherlock Holmes, which aren't actually playing fair in many ways because Holmes has this encyclopedia of knowledge in his brain um, and will often, because he's not the POV character, will have noticed something that Watson does not. Like, you know, the shade of mud on, on his left, you know, yeah. His left cuff indicated that he was bicycling through tar pits. You know, it's um, <laughs> obviously. It's elementary. a little bit of a magic trick, right? Because you're trying yeah. to make the audience feel like you played fair with them. But you, as the author, obviously have way more information than the reader does. And so how you reveal things and when you reveal it is sort of the, 
the prestige of the trick, right? Like yeah. how are you showing, how, how are you revealing the information? One thing I think a lot about in terms of the structure of this is um, you actually want the audience to solve the mystery before the detective does. And you want them to do it as close as you can to the reveal, but immediately before it. There's a famous saying in filmmaking that's like, if you let the audience realize that one plus one equals two, they will love you forever, right? And letting them feel slightly smarter than the thing that they are reading is going to really hook them. Now, if they figure it out, like on page 10, it's way too early. So being able to time what information you reveal that lets them figure out who it is right before they come to the in-text revelation is a thing that is so satisfying to the reader as they're engaging with your mystery. Yeah, I, I want to point out that that's not the same as sitting down to a familiar, uh, but you haven't seen this episode, uh, murder mystery show, and in the first 10 minutes realizing that person's the killer. I don't know <laughs> why. I, I don't have enough clue. There's no way for me to know why, other than the fact that these screenwriters, these directors, these actors consistently do certain things that are their own unconscious tells for who the killer is. And I don't know how I'm identifying that, but sometimes I'm right. And that makes, that's delightful for me. And then as the episode unfolds and I see the clues, uh, I'm even happier. And that's my goal is to make people happy when they read a thing. So we have so much more to talk about with mystery. However, we are doing a second mystery episode. And in between, we're going to be talking to you about the tools of tension. So even though I can see everybody wanting, including me, to tell you more things about mystery, uh, we're going to go ahead and wrap up here and then move on to our homework assignment. And uh, and in a couple, in seven more episodes, we're going to come back to talking about mystery with your new tool set. So, Dan, do you want to give us the homework assignment? Yeah. So, uh, this is a pretty fun, uh, pretty simple homework assignment. We want you to consume a mystery, uh, whether that is reading a book or watching a movie or a TV show or something. Uh, maybe seek one out that you haven't seen or read or try one of the genres we talked about in the beginning that you're not familiar with. Uh, we're going to be talking about mysteries for quite a while. So give yourself some ammunition to work with. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. For this episode, your hosts were Mary Robinette Kowal, Dong Wan Song, Aaron Roberts, Dan Wells, and Howard Taylor. This episode was engineered by Marshall Carr Jr. and mastered by Alex Jackson. For more information, visit writingexcuses.com. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storytellers' stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. 
In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.